a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. You could say everything old has become new again. In this episode, we explore the ancient practice of fasting. It would seem that not eating, at least for periods, has emerged as the hot new thing. Or is it just one more way we have to complicate our relationship with food? Our first guest is Melanie McGrice, founder of Nutrition Plus and an advanced accredited practicing dietitian with a master's degree in dietetics. Mel is passionate about nutrition and has an intimate understanding of diet across the lifespan. Having worked heavily in the space of nutrition for expectant mothers and children, Mel has a great passion for the impact of nutrition over the long term. Melanie, welcome to The Alternative Truth. Um, Thank you so much for having me. We're here to talk about fasting, and it seems that everything old is new again. Tell us, what are you seeing out there in the um, in the community with people and this new trend to stop eating? Yeah, it's interesting. I've actually got a lot of clients who are coming into my practice and saying... Melanie, is this good? Should I do it? Is it something that we can do together? Um, And it might have been a book that they've read or something they've heard about on social media or someone they're following, an influencer. Um, And there's just so many variations when it comes to fasting. Where has all this come from? Do you, I mean, my sense is that every ancient, ancient culture has had a fast over Easter or some other holy event but now it seems to be something that's taking, it's been picked up by the wellness community to an extent, the medical community, and it's a, it's a hot topic. But I'm, I'm wondering if it's completely overblown. Also, what's the underbelly to it all? Um, uh, well, it's interesting because there's so much confusion within it. So even in the medical community, because we're not just talking about one diet, we're talking about a range of different diets. So everything from alternate fasting, where you're completely depriving yourself of food a couple of every second day, or maybe at least cutting your, your intake down, your calorie intake down to about 25% of your normal calories, to intermittent fasting, whereby you're just fasting a couple of days a week, to um, overnight fasting, where you're reducing the number of hours. And so when you look at the research studies, they actually vary from um, some diets uh, might be where you're fasting 16 hours a day and then another diet is fasting 14 hours a day. And so you can't really compare apples with apples. You're really comparing apples with pears. And that's what is making it all so confusing. Is this something that when you were going through, say, dietetics training Mm. and education... Was this a tool that was put in the toolkit or is this just a trendy new thing? (laughs) No, it's definitely a trendy new thing. Uh, So it wasn't something that we really talked much about then. Obviously, uh, people did it for religious reasons like Ramadan. And so we did learn about that um, and how to uh, best assist people who were doing it for 
their religious reasons. Um, but it certainly wasn't something that was looked at in terms of weight management or longevity or any of the other um, medical reasons that are put out there for fasting now. Do you think that fasting is, is a, I guess, an extreme reaction to a community or a society where we're, we're kind of overall, as a population, we're kind of failing to keep our weight or weights under control? Is this, you know binge fast. <laughs> well, everybody, yeah, everybody wants fast results these days. Uh, excuse the pun. Um, and so it, um, it, people do see short, like the, we do see uh, rapid results with fasting, but it comes back to that same age old dieting question is, can people keep it off? And even though, like I said, the the research is very confusing, the research seems to suggest that people don't lose any more weight than they would with typical um, traditional calorie decrease. Um, so it's not necessarily a silver bullet, but it works for some people. So what are the factors that I guess, affect our ability to keep weight off? Because many people will have heard about the set point theory that the heavier you get, the more your Mm. body will try and defend that weight. So then if we put in place, say, a fasting measure, Mm. when we eat food again, the the circulating myth is that our body will suck up those calories and reabsorb them Mm. with a vengeance. Mm. So you're right. So one of the hormones that impacts upon uh, our set point is leptin. Um, And leptin impacts... Yes, our appetite, but also our fidgeting and things like that. Um, and leptin, even with intermittent fasting or with fasting diets, um, there is research that suggests that our leptin decreases, which means that our hunger does increase uh, when we do lose weight with fasting. So um, it's again, it's that same type of increases, sorry, decreases of leptin that we see with a calorie decrease. So um, people are still having those, like we're not overriding the um, the natural body's set point with intermittent fasting. So if I was someone that um, had 10 kilos to lose and I came to you and said, I've heard that fasting is the latest and greatest thing, mm-hmm. what would your practical response be? Uh, well, I would start by doing a nutrition assessment and then I like to find what works for that individual. And so I have put some clients on different types of fasting diets um, for the reason that for some people it works really well. Um, it suits their lifestyle. It means that they only have to fast a couple of days a week, um, particularly with intermittent fasting. And so for, for some people that works and it just helps their overall calorie intake of the for the week to decrease. Um, so I find it's quite good for weight maintenance, but you're not going to... Um, yeah, you're not going, you know, it's not necessarily any better than a decreased calorie intake. And so it's about finding that right diet that's going to suit that particular individual. What's proven to work over the long haul? <laughs> Nothing. Um, even with bariatric surgery, people regain weight. So um, I think the most important things with, uh, with the long term is lose weight as soon as you put it on. So as you were saying with the set point, it takes about two years for the set point to readjust. So um, if somebody does manage to lose 10 kilos, they need to keep that 10 kilos off for two years to develop that new set point. Um, And that's really difficult to do. Not impossible, but difficult. 
Um, and even better again, uh, the thing that I'm really passionate about is genetic programming. So actually working with mums when they're uh, pregnant um, and when they're introducing solids to help um, set up that genetic programming uh, to avoid weight gain in the future and teaching those really healthy habits to children. It's got to start that early. Um, mm. In terms of getting back to our topic of fasting, mm. in terms of uh, the dark side of fasting, do you see any potential negatives with this sort of approach? Yeah, well, first of all, there are some really extreme fasts out there. Um, we were talking a few weeks ago about um, a diet they call it the Sleeping Beauty Diet, where people literally take uh, medications to cause them to sleep for days on end uh, so that they don't eat. Um, so there are some really extreme situations and that obviously is not healthy. I mean, the other, the other question I have, having read around, is the impact of fasting on, say, women and their menstrual cycle. Mm. What are the implications? Can women fast in the same way as men with the same results? Um, so again, it depends on the type of fasting that you're doing. Um, and we know that it's not just fasting that impacts women's menstrual cycles, but any weight loss that will impact their menstrual cycle. Um, so that is definitely a consideration. And so if I have a client who is trying to conceive, I'm, an example is I had one just a couple of weeks ago who uh, came to me and, and she was actively trying to conceive and she said, oh, how about I do some fasting? And I said, I, and she had really great menstrual cycles, really regular. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea until after, um, after you finish pregnancy and breastfeeding uh, because there is that potential of impacting upon her ovulation. What about from a psychological or behavioural point of view, what's your perspective on the impact of fasting on, I guess, our relationships to ourselves or others? Yeah, um, so I think it depends on how how often you're fasting again. Um, so if you are trying to feed a family or you're wanting to go out with friends, I mean, in some ways, um, the intermittent fasting diets can actually make that lifestyle a little bit easier um, in that you can still go out for some meals and then just fast on days when you're not going out. So um, there can be that benefit. But um, uh, but in terms of uh, people who have had previous eating disorders um, or at risk of eating disorders, I think they need to be really careful of something like a fasting diet. What puts someone at risk of an eating disorder? Um Again, that's a very complicated question. That, those are the ones we like. <laughs> uh, so um, it seems to be a combination of both uh, previous trauma combined with there's research to suggest that, again, our gut microbiome may have an impact there too. Um, so, it, yeah, there definitely is a physiological trigger for some people, but you don't know who is going to be at risk. So some people can fast without it becoming an eating disorder, whereas others, um, some type of fasting can set off an eating disorder. So you do definitely have to be careful and you don't know which category you're going to be in. Given that it is Eating Disorders Week, and I, I didn't actually know that until someone told me, um, what is the difference between someone who is, say, rigid with their food and someone who's taken fasting too far? Mm. Um, yeah, so because in my clinic, I will often see people who 
um, have a disordered eating where they're just they're having a healthy diet, but their diet is so healthy that they will never allow themselves to have a treat. And I think the way that we tend to look at it is that if your eating patterns are affecting your life and your social life, then that's a, a disordered eating. So if you feel overwhelmed with guilt and stress um, because you have eaten something, um, albeit a, a chocolate bar or uh, some pasta, if that's going to impact you so much that it impacts upon your emotions, then that's um, where you'd be starting to look at it being an eating disorder. So Mel, I'm just leaning back and thinking a little bit about what the future state might look like if the current trend towards fasting, intermittent fasting, the 5-2, the Fast 800 continues. What What's our eating terrain look like from your perspective? Well, I think that then you also bring in all of the convenience foods and the shakes that you can buy over the internet and the capsules and supplements. And it all feels very uh, robotic, really, doesn't it? And I feel like um, there could be a risk of us missing what's important about eating, which is about cooking together and sitting down and sharing a meal together and and uh, just enjoying food. Um, the sensory part of food as well, and that it just becomes very robotic. So I think that's what we have to be careful of. Do you think that we are, I guess, doing enough as a community to instate that? Because when I kind of move from work to home, train station to the taxi, it would seem we're inundated with convenience. Mm -hmm. Everything Mm -hmm. from like HelloFresh to, you know, the shakes or bars you can store in your purse seem to be moving us away from the way we should be eating. Have we got our priorities totally out of whack? Yeah, we do. Um, And it's interesting, uh, I was doing something for the news a little while ago. Um, They they were looking at some research about rates of longevity in Victoria. Um, And they found that people from a lower socioeconomic status tend to have lower Um, rates of longevity and there was an anomaly and that anomaly was Melbourne CBD and I believe the reason for that is isolation Um, and I think that food when we when we start what was the stat what was different about Melbourne CBD uh, that people who lived in Melbourne CBD had shorter lifespans than other areas of Victoria that's disturbing yeah, and I, I believe it's because of isolation. I think people in Melbourne CBD are often living in single-person units. Um, they're eating food on the run. Um, they're, we're just missing that Mediterranean lifestyle whereby we all cook together and we enjoy meals and we take a siesta in the middle of the day and work isn't our top priority. Um, but at the same time, as a dietitian, when people come in to see me, I'm often asked, oh, look, Melanie, I don't care what food, what it tastes like. I just want the simplest, easiest thing to be able to lose weight. Um, and this is just very much the driver of our society now. People, people just want the results, but we actually need to somehow, if it's possible, change our culture again and get back to that more Mediterranean culture. And it's not just about the food, but it's about the culture. It's a really interesting point you make because 
and this potentially is another podcast, but um, the idea that losing 10 pounds or 10 kilos is going to solve it, mm. um, regardless of the technique, I think is a, a bit of a ruse, isn't it? Um, so just to, to sort of wrap up, if you were to, I guess, imagine sitting in front of the person who was holding their, you know, their risk factors in their hand going, right, I'm a bit overweight, should I do this fasting thing or not? Or what? where should I, should I try and learn to cook pasta with love and share mm-hmm. it with my friends? How would you encourage them to invest? Um, it's always a difficult question to answer because that's why I encourage people to go and see a dietitian and have that personalised consultation. Because in that personalised consultation, I can look at what their medical risks are, what their lifestyle is, um, where their starting point, do they know how to cook at all? Um, Like I had a guy in this week who only eats tomatoes and cucumbers. They're his only vegetables. Um, So, you know, for some people you start, that's the way that he has spent his life. Um, So (laughs) That's incredible. So for... You know, some people are starting from a very low base. So you have to start with where they're at uh, and then move from there. And so that's where, as a dietitian, I always say to my clients, I don't put everybody onto intermittent fasting. I don't put everybody onto the Mediterranean diet. I don't put everybody on any particular diet. Um, What a dietitian does is we personalize. So we look at you as an individual and we work out what's best for you and where's best for you to start um, and then start there, help people get some results so that they can get motivated and and get some confidence um, and then work on that uh, education and so forth and help them to move forward from there. Mel, thank you so much for um, lending your skills and strength to this topic. I know that many people are going to be left with a bunch more questions after this, but they can always find you at nutritionplus.com.au. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, or I'm on social media. If you just Google Melanie McGrice, um, I'm sure that you'll track me down. And, and she'll respond to every single one of you. I do. <laughs> <laughs> when Mel responded to what diet works with nothing, part of me wanted to laugh and cry. For anyone who has tried to diet, it does feel like that. Still, what I took away from our interview is that the current trend of fasting has, like any fad, real limits. First and foremost, the impact on social engagement became top of mind. Beyond this, I was left asking, does our dominant culture of continuous eating need to stop? Is the snacking industry to blame? Should we ban food on short-haul flights or maybe drive through Is living in caloric abundance and superficiality the cause of perversely using sleeping tablets to check out on life? To counter this perspective, let's hear from Maddie Lansdowne. Maddie is a scientist employed in the fields of nutritional epigenetics, vaccine formulation, and part of a cancer research team at a major Melbourne hospital. Alongside this, Maddie is a passionate international speaker, health and nutrition coach, and consultant. Maddie, welcome to The Alternative Truth. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I thought I'd start by asking you a bit about your journey uh, to where you are now as a coach, a nutritionist, a public speaker, um, and I guess an advocate for healthy lifestyles and empowerment. What have you done and how have you come to do what you're doing now? 
So it was be it's been a bit of an interesting journey. I grew up in country Victoria. Mum's a nurse. I grew up in a relatively small town, so I went to work with mum in the hospital. So I guess you could say I was indoctrinated from day one into the conventional medical system and very much this is how the world should be and work and whatnot. And so got into uni unexpectedly, moved to the city, and uh, that was I was the first lands down in my family history to ever go to university. So I had these big, I guess, goggles on, reality goggles on about what my life was going to be like as this highly educated, rich individual kind of thing. And so I shortly found out that wasn't the case. Um, so I studied forensic medicine and I majored in molecular biology. And then I had a number of jobs by which I just was made redundant by complete coincidence, after one after the other after the other. And I sort of realised... Oh, I'm not in control of my world. Essentially, it's I'm you know up to my boss. My life is up to my boss, and so I began looking for other opportunities. And then a job at the cancer hospital came up unexpectedly, and I had no desire particularly to be a cancer scientist. And I was at this point just very much like, this is another job, so I'm just going to take this job because at some point the research funding will run out for this job too. So, um, so that's sort of where my mind started to think I need to make create a business, and also. That was the initial introduction to disease, chronic disease for me. Um, I obviously knew a little bit about it from my studies, but uh, this was sort of in the deep end because my career tra- trajectory had not been sort of in that direction at all at that point. And then I sort of arrived on the front door. And I was like, oh, I probably should learn about cancer. And so I am part of a translational research laboratory. Um, and so I just started learning and I learned have learned so much. And the biggest, I guess, epiphany for me that sort of sent me solidly down creating my own health business was realizing that Western medicine in a chronic disease context does not deal with causation. And the people that come into the hospital come from the toxic life that caused the cancer or insert relevant chronic disease. And they come in and usually receive some type of toxic treatment, pharmaceutical drug, which helps a minority of people, and then they are reinserted back into their toxic reality that they came from. And so no wonder people don't heal, recover, or these journeys are lifelong because there's no element of that equation in which solves the problem or or eliminates the causative factor. And so this was the motivation for me to start my own health business. I'm going to pick up on a word you use, which is toxic, because I feel like we need to just open that up a little bit before we dive into the topic of fasting. When you say toxic, do you mean something that sort of semi or totally poisons us? Yeah, semi or totally. It it depends. Like um, a lot of people, I guess the idea as well, and sort of a bit of a caveat for toxic treatment is that sometimes a toxic life needs toxic treatment. Sometimes things are so beyond nature because we live in these toxic lives with excessive stress, poor sleep for decades, toxic relationships, like every factor of the Western life is not good for health, right? And so sometimes it. it is so extreme that you could throw herbs at it all day. It's, it won't do anything because you're so deep down the rabbit hole. So toxic, I guess, pharmaceuticals are sometimes useful. The problem is that you shouldn't put that person back in the toxic environment. Got it. And I have to admit, I have seen this because I think no one would argue by the time you've got, say, stage four cancer, it's well beyond what most people would be comfortable to treat with lifestyle modification. It's it's really quite far down the the um, path. Winding things back a little bit, thinking about what is, I guess, a not toxic lifestyle or how do we reinforce our ability to withstand toxic load, how does diet or 
fasting in this instance come into that in your in your mind? Um, well, I guess primarily dietary is the standpoint, initial standpoint in nutrition. So we're obviously, you know, we've been through, I grew up in the era and you'd be familiar as well with the six meals a day, keep your metabolism yeah. up. And along with that progression of, you know... Put, a lot of small containers. Yes, <laughs> Tupperware for days. Yeah. <laughs> but along with that... Um, put more food in, also came an increase in commercialization and the, therefore the decrease in the quality of the food we're putting in our body. And so we get to this point with fast in the context of fasting where if you haven't done it before, you've spent usually 10, 20, 30, 40, up to 70, 80 years where you've been putting three to six, seven, eight meals in your body every single day. And so you're actually not giving the biggest mechanism in your entire body, your whole entire gastrointestinal tract. You've never given it a day off in your whole life. And so in the, in the context of reducing toxic load, you're simply giving it a day off or, or even a number of hours that your body is not yet familiar with. I'm going to, I smell an opportunity to bust a myth here. So the traditional doctrine that I was brought up in was have breakfast, a big one, just to keep your metabolism going, like the metabolism was a steam engine. Yeah. And you had to keep shoveling the coal in. Yep. Otherwise, the train wouldn't go. Yeah, and that is definitely how we've been taught by our mums, our grandmas, whoever our food provider was at home. That's how we've been taught to think about the human body, that it is this unidimensional mechanism of energy in, energy out. Yeah. But, but it's not because the body requires up to 40% of its resources in order to digest a heavy carb load meal, right? So that's... Takes Say that a, again. So it takes up to 40% of the bodily blood's resources, enzymes, proteins, these types of things to digest a big meal. So that's why that's what happens with the 3 p.m. slump. So after a big lunch meal... Like a pasta. Yep, like a pasta. You hit that, that wall at about 3 p.m. because your body requires the resources that you're currently using for cognitive function and immune function and detox and all the other natural things that are happening. It withdraws from those resources to digest this toxic load, right? And it needs to differentiate between the toxins in your manufactured food and the actual nutrients in there. So in the context of, I guess... You know, looking at it like that steam engine that you referred to is that it actually requires energy. So just putting energy in does not equal energy out because it requires energy of that adds load to the system. So you'd change that metaphor to be like for every shovel of coal that you put into the engine, you put three into a tr into a carriage because you add weight to the system. Therefore, burden. Therefore, it needs energy to operate that. Got it. So flipping out to sort of say the opposite, which is fasting. Firstly, can you define for us what what exactly is fasting? Is it, can I just drink soup, just black <laughs> coffee? Like, I want to clean this up. Like, what is it? Yeah, I get this question all the time because there's so many different understandings and schools of thought around it, um, depending on your religious affiliation or, you know, lifestyle or which YouTuber you follow. But it's essentially the voluntary abstinence of from food, from anything caloric. So that includes like everything, everything that's not water, anything that requires digestion to break down. Whereas some people, there's two schools of thought. So there's the weight loss people and then there's the overall health people. And so a lot of people say that fasting, you can have like black coffee, you can have bone broth, you can have tea, different types of tea. Yeah. That's the weight loss group because their focus is not to spike insulin, which would reduce their capacity to burn body fat. The other side of the other group is the overall health group, which is the group that is interested in giving their gut a rest, allowing 
allowing other mechanisms, detox mechanisms and cellular recycle mechanisms to happen because their, their digestive system is actually having a break. So, But the definition is that it's a voluntary abstinence from food. So when I'm having the liquids, broth, black coffee, teas, all very fond of those, um, am I giving my body a half rest? Yes, well, in, especially in the fat loss area, like yeah. burning fat because you're not spiking insulin. So that's definitely possible. But, but in the context of gut health and recovery of those gut cells, um, you're not because your body, your gut needs to do the work to digest those foods to absorb them. So in scenario one, what are the benefits and what are you, what are you an advocate of? So let's say I'm coming to you, the average... Australian that's sort of having the light bulb moment, got to do something about my health. Um, what would your advice be? Because most people are like, I just want to get back in my jeans. Yeah, and the clients that I work with say that's the metric of success that they mm, use. Literally, yeah. I want to wear these shirts, I want to get into these jeans from when before I was pregnant or whatever it might be. That's literally exactly what people say to me. And so I guess the universal thing would be pre- start preparing yourself to fast. And and this is where, not that I am religious myself, but this is where religion in, in a historical context is useful because it makes doing these things socially acceptable, normal, and everybody involved understands the purpose. So it's I guess the thing is their community. So find a group of people that you're willing to, you know, traverse this experience with and begin learning about it. And, to, and when, once you're in a safe space to begin learning how to intermittent fast or just move the needle just a little bit, just one step at a time. But I'm confused about why it's become, not confused, I'm curious as to why it's become trendy right now because it's obviously ancient and then all of a sudden it feels like in the last two or three years it's popped up as a new thing. Yeah, it totally has. And, you know, the likes of Instagram and Facebook and all of these things love whatever the hot topic is. You know, it makes things seem much bigger than they are because everybody wants to talk about the latest thing. But I think there's an important distinction that needs to be made in this conversation. And that's the difference between social evolution and genetic evolution. So although we look forward in in the hope that science will bring us all of these amazing things, the, the whole history of science has existed in a time where we've undergone zero genetic evolution. Zero? Are we sure? They're so minute that they don't have a, a major metabolic impact. Got it. Right? So we, therefore, we've been, even even though fasting is ancient, we've been eating the same foods for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And then only in this, you know, tiny, tiny window of time over the last 10,000 years have we introduced all of this food in excessive abundance. And Previously, we naturally went through periods of fast, whether it be religion, whether it be there was just no food for the week because we haven't gone and hunted it yet. And so that's why we've developed this mechanism in our body that's where f- nobody dies when they do a food, like a, a food protest. They never die because the point is that they don't go into starvation for a very, very long time. Those me- starvation mechanisms are not switched on for weeks and weeks and weeks, depending on the individual, of course. What do you mean weeks? So when you say depending on the individual, you're talking about... The extra that we're all carrying, depending on how big the extra is? Well, the longest clinical fast is 382 days, right? Which is over a year. And I know everybody listening right now is like, hang on, what? This is, <laughs> this is fully documented. Who's this guy? But this guy, as you're, as you're implying, is excessive, was excessively overweight. So right. people that have more body fat, you know, are going to last longer in theory. But there's other factors in that, you know, your overall health, your mental state. I actually do remember this study, and I think um, he did take vitamins. Yes. He had vitamins, so don't try this at home. Definitely don't Um, try that at home. (laughs) So to really make this work, are you sort of suggesting that um, 
fasting has to become an embedded part of your monthly or annual routine is is something it's not just a one-off kind of let's do a 30 days no food bang I'm done back in the jeans well I guess it's like any approach to health everybody's on their own journey and there's also a difference between maintenance and therapy so if you need a therapeutic response to something because in the diet world you know a lot of the mentality around it is that we need to you know, diets are toxic, going into these things and jumping off the deep end is extreme. And that's why I use the one tweak a week method because it's baby steps so that we can make sustainable change. But if I have somebody come and want to work with me that needs a therapeutic response instantly. What do you mean a therapeutic response? Like- I mean a response to a severe health situation. Like somebody's got a disease, somebody's morbidly obese, someone's got type 2 diabetes, somebody's cancer. You know, those things require a therapeutic response. So there's there's two arms of thinking in that if you just want to have a look after yourself, maybe lose a couple of kilos, we want to move into that in a really healthy way. But then if you want to seriously deal with some a problem that's developed over decades, just like you would go to the doctor, he would begin, there'd be a day where it'd be like, from now we will use this medication or use yeah. this this routine. So there's those two schools of thinking in, a, in approaching it. But implementing it in your life for maintenance is, is a highly recommendable. So... In the instance of, say, I'm sort of making you jump from side to side here, but in the instance of, say, cancer, how might fasting play a role? Because I guess from many people's experience experience of cancer, they're often encouraged to eat and drink a lot of calories. So what you're saying, it's I'm just curious as to how that marries up with the mainstream doctrine. Yes, and this is something that bothers me greatly when I am at work and I'm discussing things with the doctors um, about, I guess, it, fundamentally it comes back to the fact that medicine and doctors for the most part don't get any more than two or three lectures in nutrition. So This is true. Yeah, and, and I, I've, I've kind of made it a thing at work where, you know, at the hospital where I now ask doctors just because it's kind of like a little game for me now. I'm like, oh, tell me, how, how much do you know about food? This thing that people have been putting into their face for 75 years. And it's like, oh, no, I don't remember anything. Apparently fiber's useful. So that that's kind of entertaining for me, but equally frustrating because they don't give food value in the context and therefore the idea of they run on the same logic that everybody listening runs on, which is the steam engine, which is more fuel must be better. But again, we're adding digestive load. So the body is usually going through chemotherapy, toxic treatment, useful for some, but toxic treatment. And then we add, we're we're encouraging these people that are in, got cancer, got the worst disease you could have, to then go and add work to their system in abundance. And it's usually the high calorie is the message. Get as much calories as yeah, you can sustagen. find. Yeah, so Yeah, right. Or it's pizza or it's ice cream. The, and that's the body interprets things in two ways, nutrient, toxin. And if you're adding toxins at a time where your body is already riddled with toxins, you're just adding work. You're adding the, the coal into the carriage. Got it. So this is quite an arresting kind of piece of information um, for people that have visited a cancer hospital, worked in a cancer hospital, had a mate in a cancer hospital. I want you to unpack a little bit about your perspective regarding how we might approach someone that has a new diagnosis of cancer. What role might fasting play in getting them a better outcome than they otherwise might get? Yeah, so there's been a few studies of people with uh, 
getting cancer therapy at the minute, like currently, and going on intermittent fasting schedules. And those uh, diets, the food that they did eat in that time was also monitored, therefore, so it was also healthier than the average person might consume. But it, it again, allows the body that longer detox period. And so if somebody got a new diagnosis, they would, you know, obviously you would talk to the doctor about it. You would very likely get an eye roll from most doctors. Um, but again, you'd have to do your own research because that's the kind of area that is it's very dangerous for practitioners to enter because it's not yet the mainstream, you know, conventional thought pattern. Let's talk about you then, Matt. If you had a new diagnosis of cancer, how would you approach it? Your body. So me, this is what I would do for me. Is the first thing I would do is go. We're not recommending this. This is just Matt, (laughs) Maddie. All my disclaimers. Um, I would go on a forty-day water fast. That's that's exactly what I would do. Why? Why? Because it would allow my body to detox. It would go very deep into a thing called autophagy, which is cellular recycling. So that essentially allows the build, so the body builds up all these toxins and things that are called free radicals, which are the result of, you know, normal processes in the body. But if we don't give the body capacity to detox those things, then they just build up and build up and build up. And then we're obviously in excessive amounts after decades that it leads to chronic disease. And so autophagy allows the cell, the those things in the cells to actually be metabolized and recycled. So if you're filling your body full of food all the time, your digestive tract doesn't get an opportunity to actually initiate autophagy. It does, but it's a naturally, but it's a very low level. So fasting, or and, and in this context, we're talking about water fasting, really upscales that autophagy process. So thinking about the rest of us, and I understand that at any point in time, we all have circulating cancer cells technically. We all have cells that are mutated, but a fit immune system will mop them up. Yes. Um, would would it be fair to, by extension, say that if we go on a fast, that we could help mop up those aberrant cells and prevent our chances of developing cancer in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. And, and I guess this is where intermittent fasting comes into it because the idea of a water fast for most people is so drastic, hippie, crazy, weird, spiritual, whatever it might be, that intermittent fasting just allows us to enter that space for a couple of hours each day. Like we just baby step into it each day a little bit and over time we can build that muscle, like metaphorical muscle. Uh, but, and but When you say baby step, like what exactly do you mean? I mean, so the first thing I, would tell, I tell anyone to do is monitor your normal life this week, document it. And most people I find come up at a 12-12 ratio. So they have a window where they have their first... Uh, bit of calorie that they put in. Um, and when I say calorie, black coffee has zero calories, but it still has nutrients in it. So black coffee counts as breaking the fast and then to, to when they finish their last meal. And usually that's a 12-hour window and their fast is 12 hours. So when I say, you know, move into it slowly, baby step into it, I would say next week, try 13-11. And then the next week, try 14-10. And just listen to your body. Don't do anything ex- extreme. Don't do the toxic diet culture, which is right. I'm starting fasting on Monday and I'm going to dive in the deep end. And oh my God, it hurts so bad. I'm hungry. Feed me. And then you're going to go on a binge eating cycle. And that's toxic diet culture approach. And that is not what I support in any way. So baby steps, one tweak a week, because that will make it sustainable. Got it. What about the downsides? What about, um, I have asked before, fertility, women, the lactating mum. Should these people be careful about fasting? Can it harm other parts of our body's natural cycle? 
Yeah, absolutely it can. And anyone that's got an eating disorder, and it's Eating Disorder um, Awareness Week this week, anyone that's got an eating disorder, orthorexia, anorexia, pregnant people, uh, severe hormonal issues for anybody trying to you know, conceive, these people should definitely steer clear of it because there is just not enough research. The other side of that equation is that there are also what I would say for most people, and I'm totally generalizing here, but for most people there are far more concerning things that they could change in their life than you know, monitoring their, you know, get better, get eight hours sleep a night, learn how to manage your cortisol levels with your stress. Like, you yeah, know, they're more important than, you know, sort of worrying about your intermittent fasting schedule for anyone that should or shouldn't be doing it. Got it. So in terms of, um, I guess, the future as you see it, if you could wave a wand and have the nutrition world the way you think it should be, how would fasting play a role in the lives of the 22 million Australians? Well, I guess... Small question. <laughs> acknowledging that everybody is different and on a different journey, in some capacity, I would, just like religion has successfully done, make fasting a normal, acceptable thing that we do as a community on a particular time of the year so that it's, you know, if you're, not do if you're doing a fast, you're not seen as weird, you're also not alone in the journey. Like that's one of the key components of health transformation is community, people going through that journey together. And so if I was to you know, lay it out as if it was perfect in an ideal world, it would be, yeah, that there'd be a time of every year where we'd get together and we'd all fast and we'd look after ourselves that way. Maddie Lansdowne, it's been an absolute pleasure. If any of you want to hear more from Matt, you can find him on his podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die, uh, or at his website, www.maddielansdowne.com. Maddie, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. From speaking with Matt, I got a strong sense that for most of us, our approach to food and eating times deserves a rethink. The relationship of fasting to more than weight control, namely for gut health and anti-cancer impacts, seems relatively absent from mainstream medical discourse. I was most interested to understand that water fasting produced significantly different benefits to drinking, say, clear fluids and keeping calories kind of low. Matt's insights left me asking, why don't oncologists prescribe fasting? What would be the net health benefit and economic saving if we all ate less? What perverse incentives have prevented us from giving this a go? Is it really possible to get a fasting crew together? Thinking back to Mel's point of view, perhaps it's truly impossible to separate our desire to socially bond over food. Is there a midpoint or does that defeat the purpose? Is a good bout of periodic fasting and scarcity really what we all need? Thank you again for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Grinberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au. I'm Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast, or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Podcast One.